From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Miles Parks. Good morning. A chaotic situation is unfolding in Russia. The head of a mercenary group there, who's been an ally of President Vladimir Putin, is turning against the Russian military. Also, it's been a year since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Will abortion be the issue of the 2024 presidential election? And Wes Anderson's new movie features an old trick, using the same cast members over and over. A company, a group of actors that work together like a ball team works together, knows each other's plays, and therefore can feed each other in a way that uh, strange pickup companies can't. It's Saturday, June 24th. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Russian President Vladimir Putin is condemning what he calls renegade actions by a Russian mercenary group. Its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, is accusing Russia's defense minister of ordering deadly missile strikes on the group's camps in Ukraine. Speaking through a BBC interpreter, President Putin is calling for his arrest. Our actions to defend the state against this threat will be harsh. Those who consciously chose treason will be inevitably punished. The Wagner Group claims to have taken control of key military facilities in two Russian cities. Meanwhile, Russia launched a heavy missile attack on the Ukrainian capital overnight. NPR's Greg Myrie reports two people were killed and several others were wounded. Air raid sirens wailed and explosions rang out through the night as Russia fired more than 20 missiles on the capital, Kyiv, and surrounding areas. Ukraine's military said it shot down all the missiles, which is often the case in such attacks. However, falling debris hit a high-rise apartment building, igniting a fire and causing the casualties. That's NPR's Greg Myrie reporting. Today marks one year since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to abortion across the nation. NPR's Sarah McCammon reports the decision has prompted a number of Republican-led states to restrict or ban the procedure. With Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court allowed states across the country to begin implementing abortion restrictions. About 60 percent of Americans say they oppose the decision in recent polls. Marjorie Dannenfelter is with the influential anti-abortion rights group SBA Pro-Life America. When there is great cultural change, there is great cultural backlash that happens. Patients on average are now traveling more than three times farther for an abortion, according to data from Middlebury College. Many also have reported being denied the procedure while facing medical emergencies. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington. A number of Republican presidential candidates are touting their anti-abortion stances as they hit the campaign trail. Speaking at a gathering of Christian conservatives on Friday, GOP hopeful Asa Hutchinson said he would sign a federal abortion ban if elected. As president, I would fight to make sure taxpayers funded, taxpayer funds are not used to support abortion. And if Congress acts, and if Congress acts, I will sign a federal law to restrict abortion as well as President of the United States. Former Vice President Mike Pence used his speech at the conference to challenge his political opponents to support a 15-week federal ban on abortion at minimum. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. In a couple minutes, we'll have a live update from NPR on the crisis in Russia. Here are some of the local stories we're following. The Healy administration is expanding services for homeless families and activating up to 50 members of the Massachusetts National Guard to help. There will be temporary housing on Joint Base Cape Cod and a new Family Welcome Center in Alston with more intake centers to come. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports. Sixteen families will be able to temporarily stay in townhouses at the Joint Base. That could be expanded to 60. Meanwhile, the Welcome Centers are intended to connect families with resources and basic necessities like diapers and food. One goal is to reduce the number of families seeking shelter at emergency rooms. Liz Alfred is with Greater Boston Legal Services. Hospitals and things like that, they have a lot of people sitting in their emergency rooms that don't have a place to go. So I don't know that it's going to solve the problem, but it'll definitely help. Alfred says the fact that the welcome centers will be open in the evenings and on weekends is a great step forward. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. The MBTA Red Lines Seven Hills station is open again this morning. The station in Dorchester abruptly closed yesterday for emergency repairs to its staircases. Crews worked overnight to restore service by 5 a.m. today. The city of Newton is buying back unwanted guns today. The event takes place at the old Aquinas College parking lot on Jackson Road from 9 a.m. to noon. People who turn in guns will receive a grocery store gift card for up to $100. The North Shore is hosting its annual Pride Parade today. People are scheduled to begin gathering at 10.30 this morning at Shetland Park in Salem. The parade kicks off at noon and ends at Salem Common. Last night in Chicago, the Red Sox beat the White Sox 3-1. to one. They play again this afternoon. Tonight at Gillette, the Revs host Toronto. It's 68 degrees in Boston, showers and thunderstorms around today, and a high about 80 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks, in for Scott Simon. Extraordinary scenes from Russia today. President Vladimir Putin addressed the nation and denounced the actions of one of his key allies as treason. At issue is a feud between the head of the private military Wagner Group, essentially a mercenary group, and the Russian Defense Ministry. After accusing the defense minister of attacking his troops, the Wagner Group said it was rebelling and intended to replace Russia's top military leadership. NPR's Charles Maines is in Moscow, and he joins us now. Hi, Charles. Morning. So just bring us up to speed. What is behind this feud between the head of the Wagner Group and the defense ministry? Yeah, you know, for months, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, has publicly criticized Russia's defense ministry over perceived failures amid the war in Ukraine, uh, all while promoting the successes of his own uh, mercenary group, the Wagner Group, on the battlefield. Now, to observers, the back and forth sniping seemed part of a larger fight for favor in the Kremlin and the financial and political capital that would come with it. Yet Prigozhin appeared to cross a red line in a video posted to his Telegram account Friday. Uh, let's listen. 
So here Prigozhin accuses the defense ministry's top brass of hyping the threat from Ukraine last year and duping President Vladimir Putin and the country into a flawed invasion. In other words, he's calling into question the rationale for the war itself. Uh, Prigozhin also insisted that deception continues, and he insulted the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, in personal and vulgar terms. And in a video posted a few hours later, Prigozhin went on to accuse Shoigu and his generals of ordering a strike that killed a large number of Wagner fighters, uh, although that claim hasn't been independently verified. Prigozhin, nonetheless, is calling on his forces to remove the defense minister in response. So as you note, this seems to be part of a battle for Putin's favor. What has the Russian president said about all this? Yeah, you know, for months, uh, the debate here has been, you know, is Putin intentionally letting this rivalry fester uh, or is he simply unable to stop it? Uh, Many lean towards the former, if only because it seemed to be producing better results on the battlefield. You'll remember that Wagner, with some help from Russian troops, took the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut after months of fighting that was earlier this summer. Uh, Yet in a televised address to the nation this morning, Putin made it clear that this time Prigozhin had finally gone too far. So here Putin says those who had organized the military uprising and taken up arms against Russian soldiers had betrayed the country and would pay the price. Uh, Meanwhile, authorities have launched an anti-terrorist operation to restore order, and Russia's FSB, the Federal Security Services, have formally charged Prigozhin with inciting an armed revolt, uh, and that carries a possible 12 to 20 years in prison if convicted. So where does this all go from here? I mean, this is all happening against the backdrop of a Ukrainian counteroffensive. Yeah, this is really the other point in Putin's speech. He drew parallels with other times in Russian history when internal fighting had thrown the country into deep political turmoil. Uh, And Putin said that at a moment when Russia is fighting in Ukraine against what he calls the collective West, in other words, against NATO, that this was not the time. Uh, And yet here we are in what looks like a full-blown crisis. Uh, Despite Putin's attempts to stamp out this rebellion, uh, Prigozhin and his Wagner mercenaries control several military installations in the southern Russian city of Rostov-on-Don. That's a key military hub for the war effort in Ukraine. Uh, Russia's defense ministry says Wagner forces are marching on Moscow. And Prigozhin says neither he nor his fighters are about to surrender on the orders of the president, the FSB, or anybody else. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you so much. Thank you. One year ago today, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and the landscape for abortion access across America began to shift state by state. President Biden acknowledged the anniversary with an event yesterday. He reflected on the significance of the Dobbs decision, and he rallied the support of some key abortion rights groups. Americans would not stand by and let the court take away the right that's so fundamental. That we'd fight, we'd fight to restore these protections of Roe v. Wade and make it the law of the land once again, and we're going to do that. NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell has been watching all of this, and she joins us now. Hi, Kelsey. Hi there. So President Biden makes this speech where he signals that abortion rights are going to be front and center for his administration, and it seems to be front and center for his campaign next year. But am I right in noting that that has not really always been the case? 
Well, you know, one of the things that we are seeing happen right now is that the Biden campaign is just starting to really kick up. Like, this is just the kind of rolling out of this campaign. And Biden made these comments in a political speech, and it happened down the street from the White House at the Mayflower Hotel. It was this moment of seeing the separation of the president from the campaign. And what we also are hearing in this speech is kind of a thesis for his campaign at large. He talked about the election as, quote, freedom on the ballot. Now, you can hear how that could apply to other things that Democrats want to talk about, things well beyond abortion. It could apply to messaging around the restrictive policies Republicans are pushing in states like book bans and immigration restrictions or limitations on LGBTQ rights, you know, and healthcare access restrictions. So Democrats have been previewing that type of message with their talk of extreme mega Republicans for months now. And that kind of ties all of it together. The event also rolled out endorsements from major abortion rights groups, which, you know, kind of tied it all together for Biden at this moment when he's having a speech down the street from Republicans who were gathered uh, for the Faith and Freedom Coalition conference, creating just a very clear juxtaposition between the two parties. Also, speaking of Republicans, this presidential field that's been forming over the last few weeks, um, how how is the field responding to this Dobbs anniversary? Well, I think the person I would think of um, most quickly when I'm when I'm thinking about discussion around abortion is former Vice President Mike Pence, because he has made abortion um, kind of an issue for him, a, a majority of his political career. And he was clear at that Faith and Freedom Coalition event that abortion will be a huge element of his message in running for president. The cause of life is the calling of our time, and we must not rest and must not relent until we restore the sanctity of life to the center of American law in every state in this country. Now, it's worth it to remember that Pence was kind of chosen for the VP candidate um, with former President Trump because of his history with the uh, evangelical conservative movement. Other candidates also talk about abortion restrictions. Um, they also talk about the about life in general, um, not quite the way that Pence does. We do hear from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has um, overseen the passage of a six-week abortion ban in his state, and others like uh, Governor... Uh, Former uh, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott talk about uh, faith and protecting life. So it seems like this is going to be a pretty critical issue looking ahead at next year's presidential election. Do we have any sense, mm. any new sense on how voters are feeling about the issue? Well, we are seeing that voters are growing more supportive of abortion rights. The latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll came out just this past week and found that 57% of respondents oppose the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. You know, as expected, a large majority of Democrats agree with that statement. But the thing that I think is very interesting and will be potentially very telling about about the way uh, voters behave in the upcoming election is that nearly six in 10 independents shared that view. And independent women, um, 63% of them shared that view. And women in small cities, and nearly two-thirds of them shared that view. So that puts Republicans in opposition with the majority of voters and a majority of those really critical swing voters. That is NPR's Kelsey Snell. Thank you so much, Kelsey. Thanks so much for having me. A new report paints a worrisome picture for education across the U.S. 
The average test scores for 13-year-olds have dipped in reading and dropped sharply in math since 2020. That's according to new data from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo reports. This year's scores are the lowest recorded in decades. The new data is part of NAEP's long-term trend assessment, traditionally done every four years. And this cycle, the average declined four points in reading and nine points in math, compared with tests given in the 2019-2020 school year. The declines in reading were more pronounced for lower-performing students, but dropped across all percentiles. And the math scores showed even more cause for alarm with a steep decline, erasing decades of progress and showing widening gaps based on gender and race. For those watching the numbers, like Andrew Ho, a professor at Harvard's Graduate School of Education, the continued drop, coming more than a year after students returned to the classroom following the pandemic, was somewhat surprising. I expected less of a decline because hopefully we're on the upswing. I didn't see as much of that as I had hoped. Previous NAEP data looked at 2020 to 2022 and showed a steep drop in scores due to the pandemic. But the new data includes the most recent school year. So a continued decline shows that current methods to mitigate learning loss are not working yet. Ho says the data is disappointing, but shouldn't be too discouraging. It's taken generations to move just a little bit. So when we lose it all in two to three years, it's kind of heartbreaking and makes us feel like, oh, what, what, whatever can we do? We have to remember just how much effort that, that generation of progress took and not expect uh, magic to happen overnight. U.S. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona agreed. He said in a statement that the data confirmed predictions that it would take years of, quote, effort and investment to change course on the damage from the COVID-19 pandemic. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. listening to NPR News. Stay with 90.9 WBUR as we bring you coverage of the crisis in Russia. Russian President Vladimir Putin is condemning what he calls treason, denouncing an armed mutiny led by the head of a pro-Kremlin mercenary force. Follow this major developing story today here on 90.9 WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA. Ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. And catch light painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. 
I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. Russian President Vladimir Putin is condemning what he calls renegade actions by Russian mercenaries. The head of the Wagner Group is accusing the Russian defense minister of ordering deadly missile strikes on the group's camps in Ukraine. Today marks one year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. The decision has prompted a number of Republican-led states to pass legislation that bans or severely restricts the procedure. Forecasters are tracking a pair of tropical storms in the Atlantic Ocean. Both systems are expected to become depressions without reaching hurricane status. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or staples.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. The U.S. Supreme Court on Friday cleared the way for the Biden administration to reinstate its strategy on immigration enforcement. That enforcement strategy had been blocked after a legal challenge by the states of Texas and Louisiana. Yesterday's high court ruling could have broader implications for other immigration cases as well. NPR's Joel Rose covers immigration, and he joins us now for more. Hi, Joel. Hey, Miles. So tell us a little bit more about this case. What was at stake? Yeah, this is a closely watched case because what's at stake is is really how much authority the Biden administration or any administration has to set immigration policy. It's widely agreed that there are not enough resources for immigration and customs enforcement to simply arrest everyone who is in the country without authorization. So the Biden administration said, we want to use our prosecutorial discretion to set priorities, to focus on suspected terrorists, on threats to public safety, and on recent border crossers. And crucially, under this guidance, simply being present in the U.S. without authorization is generally not a reason to detain someone. These priorities were quickly challenged in court by the states of Texas and Louisiana, and they argued that the guidelines go far beyond the priorities of past administrations and are basically preventing immigration authorities from doing their jobs. The lower court agreed and blocked this guidance last year. Okay, so what did the Supreme Court decide? The court ruled that Texas and Louisiana lacked the standing to challenge these guidelines in the first place because the states had not shown a direct injury from these enforcement priorities, at least not one that could be redressed by the courts. The vote was eight to one. Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote the majority opinion, joined by Chief Justice John Roberts and the court's liberals. There were several concurring opinions from the other conservatives that reach roughly the same conclusion, but by slightly different legal rationales. Only Justice Samuel Alito dissented, finding that Texas and Louisiana should have been able to sue in this case. This feels like a pretty big win for the Biden administration. Is that right? It's definitely a win in the short run because the Biden administration can officially begin enforcing these priorities again. In the long run, I think it's harder to say. In the majority opinion, Justice Kavanaugh writes several times about how narrow this decision is that the court decided the standing questions on the facts that were before it in this case, but that there might be another case where the states would have standing to sue. So some legal analysts are saying 
do not read too much into this ruling, including Stephen Yale Lair, who teaches law at Cornell University. The court's decision was pretty narrow. From a larger legal perspective, it doesn't really resolve the issue of when states can and cannot sue to challenge federal policies, whether they're immigration or otherwise. And so the battle will continue on those fronts. Well, and the Biden administration has been sued a number of times by Texas and other states over its immigration policies. What does this ruling mean for in those other instances? That's really the big question. I mean, we're talking about cases with a lot at stake. There's a case about the future, for example, of Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, you know, that is likely heading for the Supreme Court. DACA, by the way, protects immigrants who are brought to the U.S. as children. So this decision on standing could be a big deal. Certainly, it's going to give the Biden administration and immigrant advocates fresh ammunition to argue that states that are challenging these policies should not get standing in those cases either. What we really don't know is how well that argument is going to work, right? I mean, how much weight lower court judges will decide to give this Supreme Court ruling. I think the bottom line is that there's going to be more litigation. You know, this is the second time in two years that the Supreme Court has sided with the Biden administration against states in these big immigration cases. But that ruling last year did not stop states from challenging immigration policies in court. I don't think this one is likely to do that either. Hmm. That's NPR's Joel Rose. Thank you so much for monitoring this, Joel. You're welcome. The attorney John Eastman was a key player in Donald Trump's legal effort to overturn the 2020 election. That work has now landed Eastman in a courtroom in downtown Los Angeles, where the State Bar of California is trying to revoke Eastman's law license. And in a way, this case is putting 2020 election denial on trial. NPR's Tom Dreisbach has been in the courtroom and he's been covering the case all week. Hi, Tom. Hey, good morning. So there were a lot of lawyers working with Trump to challenge the 2020 election a few years ago. Can you remind us what Eastman's role was? Yeah. So if people remember the pro-Trump rally on January 6th, just before the Capitol riot, Eastman was this guy on stage at that rally wearing a kind of Indiana Jones type hat, uh, standing alongside Rudy Giuliani. And at the rally, he made this just baseless claim that the voting machines had a, quote, secret folder of votes that was used to steal the election from Trump. Now, Eastman was also behind the scenes, this architect of a plan for Vice President Pence to stop the count of Electoral College votes and block Biden's victory. So he was both filing lawsuits that included some of these fraud claims and voting irregularities, and at the same time was advancing the legal theory that Pence could overturn the election and working on sending alternative or fake pro-Trump slates of electors to the Electoral College college. Now, after the insurrection on January 6th, Eastman wrote an email to Rudy Giuliani asking for Trump to add him to a list of pardons he heard was going around. But ultimately, Eastman did not receive that pardon. Okay. And so how is the state of California making the case that Eastman should lose his license for all of this? Well, the state bar says, for one thing, that Eastman was either knowingly making false claims of election fraud or he was willfully blind to the fact that the information he was sharing was false. And that goes against professional responsibilities for lawyers. Now, this week we heard testimony from Greg Jacob. He was a counsel to Vice President Pence. Behind the scenes, he was pushing back on the Eastman plan. And Jacob testified that Eastman admitted to him that if they actually tried Eastman's plan for Pence to stop the Electoral College count, that the Supreme Court would overrule them nine to nothing. In other words, the State Bar is trying to show Eastman knew this plan was unconstitutional and he tried it anyway. And Jacob also testified, importantly, that he thought Eastman's plan helped contribute to the riot itself. Right. I remember Jacob testifying during the January 6th commission hearings as well. So the State Bar is still making its case, but any idea what Eastman's defense is going to be? 
Right. So we've got the state bars case, which includes a lot of election officials testifying that the election was safe and secure and there was no widespread fraud. Eastman's list of witnesses includes some pretty well-known election deniers, people you've covered, Miles, you know, suggesting that Eastman wants to put the election itself on trial to some extent. You know, he wants to show that he had a good faith reason to believe there was election fraud. On the witness list for Eastman is a guy named Mark Fincham. He's a far-right Arizona politician, member of the Oath Keepers, and a prominent election denier. Another guy on the witness list is a CPA, not an election expert, a guy who wrote an ebook about the 2020 election. And finally, also Douglas Frank, who's a former high school teacher, now travels around the country doing presentations about why he thinks the election was stolen. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, that is really like a greatest hits of election denial folks from the last few years. How is this all going to play? Because I know the legal world has not had much patience for these sorts of theories in the past. Mm -hmm. I talked to one legal expert who said, you know, Eastman does really face an uphill battle here. The scheme also where alternate or fake pro-Trump electors were sent to the Electoral College, that is now under federal criminal investigation. So the FBI actually seized Eastman's phone last year as part of that. Now, these fraud claims have also just been debunked again and again. One of the claims Eastman relied on came from a guy with a criminal record, with a side gig as a, quote, amateur ghost hunter. And Eastman testified in court that he was not aware of the ghost hunting. I'm eager to see what happens next week. Now, that's when we expect Eastman to present his defense case and see his witnesses get questioned under oath. These proceedings are being pretty widely watched around the country. Why do you think that is? You know, I think over the last two years, we've seen a lot of legal consequences for people who breached the U.S. Capitol and, and actually rioted in the building. But we have not seen a lot of legal consequences for the politicians and lawyers who led the so-called Stop the Steal movement. And so I think a lot of people are wondering, will there be consequences for someone like John Eastman, who was working on that movement behind the scenes and even at the rally on January 6th? Or will the judge decide, you know, as Eastman would like, that he was just zealously advocating for his client, Donald Trump? NPR's Tom Dreisbach, thank you so much for covering this. Thanks. Wes Anderson movies all have a certain feel. The vibrant colors, goofy writing, but maybe most important, the cast. Specifically, the same cast over and over. Anderson's new movie, Asteroid City, does it again. One of the film's stars, Jason Schwartzman, has worked with Anderson more than half a dozen times, which made us want to reach out to NPR's resident movie expert, Bob Mondello. Hi, Bob. Hi, it's good to be here. It's great to have you. So I studied theater in school where this idea of using the same cast over and over again is not uncommon. Do you trace someone like Wes Anderson's style back to the idea of repertory theater? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This goes back to probably the Greeks, but for most of us, we think of it with Shakespeare's. Uh, Shakespeare had a company of actors he was writing for. If you see his plays, you can, and, and you see them in close succession, you can imagine the same actor playing Falstaff, the comic character in some of the histories, and playing uh, Hamlet's uncle in Hamlet. So you get the same kind of actor doing the same kind of part. Back when I was doing a series about regional theaters, I talked to Robert Brustein, who is a critic who also uh, founded the Yale Rep in New Haven and the American Repertory Theater. And he explained to me what it is that a repertory company is. A company, a group of actors that work together like a ball team works together, knows each other's plays, 
and therefore can feed each other in a way that uh, strange pickup companies can't. Bob, is there a movie in your mind that really makes the case for the repertory cast? Arguably the greatest movie ever made, uh, Citizen Kane. This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theater, and I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. I'd like you to meet them. In the present day, is this a Wes Anderson-specific thing, or are there other directors who you think of who, who use the repertory style? No, there are a lot of people who do it, although Wes Anderson is the one who does it regularly now. But if you think about the beginnings of a lot of our couriers, um, Martin Scorsese, when he first started out, uh, used Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro and a few other actors in a lot of different movies, and you got used to those people working together. Woody Allen, Spike Lee, when he first started out. So a lot of people have done this before. Wes Anderson has done it for an entire career, and that's different. Jason Schwartzman, I mean, the man owes Wes Anderson his career. Well, and you can almost see a lot of these actors grow up, it feels like, throughout over the course of his career, right? Absolutely. As a director, you know what you want and that the actors can give you a certain thing. I mean, when Orson Welles came over from the theater... And he brought actors with him, uh, like Joseph Cotton and uh, and Agnes Moorhead and those people. He knew what they could do. He was writing parts in hmm. Citizen Kane for them. And he wrote parts in The Magnificent Ambersons for them. And so bringing those actors along, he knew he'd get a certain quality of of performance from them. Well, he made them into film stars. So it was working together that made them significant. I wonder about franchises because I think it has the same effect like this idea of an audience becoming comfortable with the cast after seeing them a number of movies would you consider you know <laughs> the, the, the repertory of yeah, repertory right, that, company of Harry Potter <laughs> or Marvel or something like that does that fit into the well, the same category the difference there is that they're making different stories using the same characters you know in in Harry Potter Daniel Radcliffe is playing Harry Potter in all those movies yeah. Maggie Smith is playing Professor McGonagall in all of those movies. So it's not that they're playing different characters. They're playing variations of the same story. That's like television. So, yeah, it's it's a different animal. Can you talk big picture, Bob, about why, specifically with Wes Anderson, why does this work so well? When you have a lot of people come into a Wes Anderson movie, as you do in this one, the deadpan style that he likes, you have a new actor like Tom Hanks or Scarlett Johansson or Margot Robbie coming into this atmosphere and you watch them adapt what you know they can do everywhere else to this. That's fascinating. And if you follow the style, if you've been looking at Wes Anderson movies all along, it's so cool to see what people that you don't associate with him become when they're under his auspices. Bob Mondello, movie critic for NPR. Thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The rail industry went on trial this week. Federal investigators quizzed railroad and emergency personnel about the train derailment in February that led to the burning of toxic chemicals in Ohio. Hundreds of people have reported health symptoms since that crash. The National Transportation Safety Board held these hearings in the Ohio town most affected, East Palestine. The Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier has this report. One of the thorniest topics of these hearings was not the circumstances of the crash, but what happened afterwards. Five tank cars filled with chemicals sat on the railroad tracks surrounded by fire. Norfolk Southern officials worried the cars would explode due to something called polymerization. That's why they made the decision to burn the contents. Paul Thomas is with the company that made the chemicals. He said they told the rail company there were no indications that process was happening. Three different occasions we expressed we didn't believe it was, but I think more importantly we said here's how you can know so that you can protect your folks. If you can get a temperature, it will tell you whether polymerization is occurring or not. Temperature readings later showed a critical tank car was actually cooling off when the burn occurred. Drew McCarty was one of the first Norfolk Southern contractors to arrive on the scene. He testified that they burned the contents of the cars because they had no better options. If it was one of those four cars that had even an eighth inch deep score gouge, some kind of metallurgy damage that we just never got a fair chance to look at, heaven forbid worse damage, this community was in serious risk. Investigators also focused on Norfolk Southern's safety records. Like many of the biggest railroads, the company has cut staff, put longer trains on the railroads, and pushed to get cars out of rail yards faster. Unions and industry watchers say these are dangerous practices. Jason Cox represents one of these unions. He says Norfolk Southern missed opportunities to spot the problem at multiple checkpoints. There are qualified mechanical inspectors at all these points, and they were not allowed to inspect this car at any of those locations. Cox pointed out Norfolk Southern has cut inspection times down to only 30 seconds per side of each rail car. He said the car that failed didn't even get this much scrutiny on its trip. This car came into Decatur, Illinois, passed through Toledo, Ohio, where it stopped, Cleveland, Ohio, where it stopped. Norfolk Southern and industry representatives deflected much of the criticism. They argued making rules too stringent would jam up the railroads. In one exchange, NTSB chair Jennifer Homendy asked Norfolk Southern's Jared Hopewell whether the company has time limits for its inspections. In my limited experience uh, around our mechanical department, uh, no, I have not seen one. No policy that, no written policy on time limits for railcar inspections. Limitations on time, no. The NTSB will issue safety recommendations. A bill before Congress would tighten restrictions on hazardous materials on trains and increase rail inspections. That's not helping the people of East Palestine. It's still unclear when or if they will receive long-term compensation. For NPR News, I'm Reed Frazier.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Stay with WBUR for coverage of the turmoil in Russia. Russian President Vladimir Putin is condemning what he calls an armed mutiny led by the head of a pro-Kremlin mercenary force. Putin is denouncing it as treason. The Russian mercenary leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, is denying Putin's allegation of betrayal and calls his fighters patriots. Prigozhin claims his troops took the city of Rostov-on-Don in southern Russia without firing a single shot. The Wagner Group leader also is accusing the Russian military of attacking his advancing convoys. Prigozhin is vowing to end corruption and lies in Russia. Previously, Prigozhin had been considered loyal to Putin. Some countries that border Russia are building up security. NATO says it is monitoring the situation closely. Follow this major developing story today here on 90.9 WBUR. It is 69 degrees in Boston with showers today and a chance of thunderstorms. A high around 80, a slight chance of showers tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and thunderstorms for your Sunday and highs in the mid-80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU College of Fine Arts. Earn your graduate degree at a tight-knit arts community in a vibrant university. bu.edu slash cfa slash grad. And Welch and Forbes, over 100 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com. One year ago, the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to abortion. It was the biggest court ruling in generations, and it quickly changed life in places where that access was taken away, sometimes at a major risk to health. To them, my life was not in danger enough. Life in a post-Row America, that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Tropical Storm Brett battered the Caribbean with heavy rain and winds this week. Scientists warn that climate change will likely bring more intense and frequent storms to island nations, in part due to rising ocean temperatures. One one nation, Dominica, has launched an ambitious plan to become the world's most climate-resilient country by 2030. With support from the UN Foundation, NPR's Kirk Siegler traveled to Dominica to report how it's actually still recovering from a devastating hurricane six years ago. It's just before dawn in Laiu, a fishing village on the west coast of Dominica, a mountainous, jungly island roughly the size of New York City. Good morning. Villagers are up early to harvest titiwi, a tiny river fish. It's a local staple that's made into a delicious fried fritter. The men scoop the penny-sized fish out of a net they left overnight in this river channel that dumps into the sea. Here was a main, main fishing spot, Laiu. You get all type of fish. Even as you say, they have the titiwi. Yeah. 
Peter Alexander, a slender man with brown dreadlocks and a salt and pepper beard, is waist deep in the water. I say that tradition for for Layu. Everybody in Layu, as you could see, fishing. Everybody make money. Except these days, making money from fishing is getting way harder, and the village is stressed. Hurricane Maria in 2017 changed everything. Mudslides blocked the Layu River, plugging up the currents and this estuary. We had a big disaster. Up in the heights, a landslide for long, and the whole river, entire, stopped. It's like no river. Now, to make a living, Alexander has to travel all over the country just to find enough tuna, mackerel, and other fish that were once abundant right here. It was a terrible disaster for Dominica, but we survived, and we say praise God for that. Maria was terrible. Two feet of rain fell. The wind blew upwards of 165 miles per hour. Mudslides cut off villages from aid for weeks. Maria used to be considered a once-in-a-lifetime disaster, but scientists say these powerful storms are more likely due to climate change. It's been six years, and yet Maria continues to upend so much of everyday life in this mostly rural country, which long depended on subsistence agriculture and fishing. Dubbed Nature Island for its dramatic beauty, Dominica's steep 4,000-foot-high volcanic mountains crash down to the ocean. Dominica is not known for the white sandy beaches of some of its more famous neighbors like Barbados. They've tried to push ecotourism, but the country's economy has struggled since its independence from Great Britain in 1978. The pillars of economic growth. Um, we were not fully planted and still are not fully planted, and then basically they were blown away completely. This is Samuel Carrot, who runs the Climate Resilience Execution Agency for Dominica, or CREED, which was started by the government after Maria. We lost 226% of our GDP, 93% of our housing stock. It's staggering. <laughs> yeah, 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 staggering indeed, and very traumatizing as well. Today, it's Carrot's job to usher through an ambitious government plan to make his country the, quote, world's first climate-resilient nation. By 2030, Dominica wants sweeping hurricane-resistant building codes in place, an island-wide emergency alert system, and homegrown geothermal energy they don't have to import. They're even trying to change the crops they grow to more root vegetables that could survive devastating winds. We are basically putting all systems in place to ensure that the worst happens. We will be ready to cope, to manage, and to recover. The price tag is about $2.8 billion. Only 70,000 or so people live here, so a lot of it will depend on international aid. But disaster recovery experts like Lori Peake at the University of Colorado see this as fair. Big developed nations like the U.S. contribute the most amount of climate pollution, which makes the future precarious for small countries like Dominica. If the recent wildfires in Canada and affecting the United States have taught us anything. It is that we are all interconnected. We are all living at risk. Peak is also currently working on mudslide mitigation in Puerto Rico after Maria. She says Dominica's plan is bold, but it sets measurable targets. She warns there's a small window to get it done. The risk is outrunning us. And so as we're trying to mitigate and to adapt, disasters keep coming and they keep layering on top of each other. Even just a tropical storm like Brett this summer could set everything back. Now, the Dominica government has built about 7,000 new homes to withstand another Category 5 hurricane. 
There was so much destruction from recent storms on the more vulnerable east coast that they actually picked up and moved two whole communities to another part of the island. See the avocados, man, coming in. After a tropical storm severely damaged his resort in 2015, Sam Rafael also decided to pick up and move his entire business to the more sheltered western coast of Dominica. When we moved on to this side, we tied everything with reinforced steel and concrete. Gone are the villas on wooden stilts. In the dining room, perched high on a bluff with a rewarding view of the deep blue Caribbean, the traditional island-themed wooden beams, they're a facade. They're really made of concrete. You walk in here, you would never think that this is a new building that was recently built. Raphael hopes the new buildings will never get tested by a storm as bad as Maria, but... Are you going to be 100% prepared? You never know, because the storms are getting worse and worse. But the key is to prepare yourself better, because you know it's coming. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But Raphael knows a lot of people can't afford to do what he did. Traveling Dominica's countless steep, narrow mountain roads, it's clear that many people built back from Maria as well as they could. And some people have just left. You can see that on this narrow street in the seaside village of Safir, below Rafael's resort. Two houses were wiped out and clearly never rebuilt. You can see vines uh, growing out of some of the uh, busted out windows, nature taking over. They're both missing their roofs. The prime minister of nearby Barbados recently warned of a large-scale exodus from the Caribbean soon if global emissions aren't drastically cut. Samuel Carrot, who's leading Dominica's 2030 climate plan, thinks there's still time. These storms, he says, you have to outsmart them. For now, we have to figure out how to live with the hurricanes. And one way is to build resilience. When it becomes unbearable <laughs> and so unsustainable, <laughs> we have to consider the possibility. The possibility that there might one day be parts of the island where it's not safe to live anymore. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Sufir, Dominica. The pandemic stretched many emergency rooms beyond their capacities. But after three years of COVID, the new head of the American College of Emergency Physicians says many of her colleagues are still living in a triage environment. Hear that conversation tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha Roscoe. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. The music of Icelandic band Sigurós is hard to describe, though critics have tried, comparing it to ice flows drifting across the water and a hang glider riding the breeze to the edge of the sea. Fortunately, this is radio, so you can hear it for yourself. Whatever you call them, Sigur Rós is one of the most acclaimed post-rock bands out there, selling close to 10 million albums. Its summer tour is already sold out, and it has released its eighth studio album called Auta. Keyboardist Kjartan Svensson joins us now from Iceland. Welcome to Weekend Edition. Thank you so much. So you returned to the band after a number of years apart. How long did you end up being away? Well, uh, officially it was uh, 10 years. 
that, you know, I had kind of drifted away a bit before that. Tell me a little bit about kind of what you got from that time away, because the new album does feel like it has a texture or a melody that feels definitely different than the the, the band's previous album, which was made um, without you. I wondered if that was an intentional thing or what you kind of thought about um, as you guys were crafting this music. No, it wasn't really intentional. It was just, uh, you know, getting together and start writing. And this is what came out, I think. We started in the, just before the pandemic. And, and also we did some writing during the pandemic. You know, after all that, you know, the pandemic was, um, you know, well, kind of needs, you know, kind of beautiful music. <laughs> I feel like I've heard that a lot from artists that I've talked to in the last year or so, that there is this kind of general sense that the world needs beauty right now. Do you feel mm -hmm. that? Yeah, definitely. We need to be challenged a bit also, just in the way we listen and, and people need to... Uh, explore and give themselves time to uh, discover new things. Let's listen to a little bit of the song Blokberg. And so as I mentioned earlier, Sigur Rós's music invokes a lot of imagery often. Nature, water are things that are sometimes talked about. I wondered if that is something as you guys were setting out to write this album, were there any images or visuals that you were thinking about trying to evoke? No, no, we, we never have any preconceptual, you know, things like that going on. We're all kind of simple guys, really, and uh, we've never kind of been very conceptual about anything, really, you know. Our conceptual ideas very often come uh, about afterwards, you know, after the uh, creative bit has been done, and then you kind of start thinking about it. But Cirrus has always been about free flow, and uh, I mean, we're not clever enough to kind of be, uh, you know, planning things, you know, while we create. One thing that's really interesting to me as somebody, you know, who's played in a few bands, I think when I listen to rock music especially, usually I can pick out the melody or the rhythm that a song started with and you can be like, oh, I bet you it started there and they kind of built it around that. I have a lot of trouble doing that with your guys' music, which I think is a compliment, that it sounds so full and whole and connected, the final product does. How do these songs start at the very beginning? Usually they start with some sort of a riff some sort of a chord progression, whether it's the, you know, my piano or sometimes it's the bass and, and sometimes Jonsi's uh, guitar. Right, and Jonsi is the lead vocalist for the band. 
but it's very rarely that a melody kind of uh, is is the start of a song. I want to talk a little bit about Yonzi's um, use of vocals uh, on your all's music, and to do that, I want to play a little bit of the last song on the album, Eight. So I know Yonzi sings in this mix of Icelandic and Hopelandic, which is a made-up language. What are we listening to there in that song? There we're, we're just listening to some gibberish in that part, yeah. How does he do that? How does he vo- evoke so much um, emotional feeling from from the listener without singing words that make logical sense? Yeah, I mean, words are overrated, don't they? Hmm. <laughs> don't tell but, that to a radio professional. <laughs> no, I mean, it's the same with, you know, the, just like old classical music as well. I mean, there are, you know, loads of beautiful symphonies and string you name it. Uh, there are so many beautiful things, yeah. and um, he's just, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it is quite amazing, you know, he's really good at it, but not that he thinks about it, it's all kind of just comes to him. Do you ever find after you've finished a song that there is a sort of narrative or story in there somewhere? Yeah, when, when we've written a song and we decide we want to make some lyrics, we actually, sometimes we just hear things that he is saying, you know, then that maybe becomes an inspiration for a for a lyric. And that's really nice when that happens, I think. Usually, I would say they just have their independent life, you know, without any words. Yeah, sometimes it evokes a feeling. I mean, we, we have like, uh, I remember, you know, especially uh, on our 2005 album, Tak, was a song, you know, the last song, and we were just talking about, yeah, you know, what that song was about, and everyone had a kind of a similar feel, you know. I, I don't know, it's, you know, this song is like uh, sitting in a field somewhere, chewing a straw, and being kind of content with life, you know, kind of. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes we uh, write lyrics with that method. Keyboardist Kjartan Svensson of the band Seeger Rose. Thank you so much for joining us on Weekend Edition. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card, Capital One is proud to support NPR Music and the Tiny Desk Contest. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age.
Just ahead on 90.9 WBUR, more coverage of the turmoil in Russia. Russian President Vladimir Putin is condemning what he calls an armed mutiny led by the head of a pro-Kremlin mercenary force. President Biden has been briefed on the crisis. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. On last week's Wait, Wait, Adam Felber wished Godspeed to Pat Sajak, retiring after 40 years hosting Wheel of Fortune. I don't know if you've seen that show in the last couple of decades, but how different is retirement from hosting Wheel of Fortune? (laughs) (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. We're not retiring, and to prove it, we're going to be live at Tanglewood with special guest Karen Allen. Hey, if she's still doing Indiana Jones movies, we can still do this. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm here and now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Miles Parks. Good morning. What might turmoil in the Russian military mean for Ukraine? For now, the counteroffensive push continues. Also, temperatures broke records across Texas this week. A meteorologist tells us, unfortunately, relief isn't coming anytime soon. And what is it about Ireland that makes for such a good novel? You know how every single horror movie in the 1950s was about aliens because everybody was afraid of communism. Irish women recounting their lives. It's almost like a millennial horror story of like, this is how it feels. Caroline O'Donoghue on our new book, The Rachel Incident. It's Saturday, June 24th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Russian President Vladimir Putin is condemning an uprising by the head of a pro-Kremlin mercenary force against his defense ministry. NPR's Charles Maines reports Putin is calling the move a betrayal that risks undermining Russia's war efforts in Ukraine. In a televised address to the nation, Putin said those who had organized the military uprising had betrayed the country and would answer for their crimes. Putin also called on fighters taking part to avoid a fatal, tragic mistake and end the rebellion. While mentioning no names, Putin's address was squarely aimed at Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner mercenary force who was formally charged with inciting an armed revolt by Russia's federal security services hours prior. The criminal charge against Prigozhin came after he accused Russia's top brass of carrying out lethal attacks on Wagner fighters and called on his mercenaries to remove Russia's defense minister by force. Prigozhin claims his fighters currently control several military installations in the key southern Russian city of Rostov-on-Don. Authorities say they've launched an anti-terrorist operation to restore order. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. President Biden says his administration is closely monitoring the situation in Russia. Today marks one year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision that guaranteed the right to an abortion. 
Secretary of Health and Human Services Javier Becerra visited a Planned Parenthood clinic in Fairview, Illinois, on Friday. Speaking at the facility, Becerra reaffirmed the Biden administration's pledge to continue the fight for women's reproductive rights. We want to make sure people know that they have rights and that they know they have places where they can go to exercise their right to full and complete and professional health care. According to data from the Guttmacher Institute, more than a dozen U.S. states have a near or total ban on abortion. The National Transportation Safety Board has launched investigative hearings into the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment earlier this year. Abigail Botar of IdeaStream Public Media reports. Jason Cox with the Brotherhood of Railway Carmen testified that the safety of railroads decreased drastically when precision scheduled railroading, a service model designed to streamline operations, became the standard for Class 1 railroads. He says the standard amount of time to inspect each car used to be around three minutes aside. Now it's down to 30 seconds aside. Exhibit H40 outlines a uh, supervisor scorning the mechanical employees when they spent 45 seconds aside. Cox says the car that derailed in East Palestine was not inspected when Norfolk Southern received it, and he says inspection may have prevented the derailment. For NPR News, I'm Abigail Botar. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. In just a few minutes, NPR will have reaction from Ukraine to the power struggle unfolding this morning in Russia. Here are some of the local stories we're following. Chemical manufacturing giant 3M will pay up to $10 billion to help cities and towns test for toxic PFAS chemicals in public water supplies and clean them up. The settlement comes after hundreds of claims were filed against 3M for its role in contaminating drinking water. The company produced firefighting foam that contained PFAS and contaminated several sites in Massachusetts. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports. The settlement follows a similar deal with DuPont earlier this month, which agreed to pay about $1 billion. Jennifer Peterson is executive director of the Massachusetts Waterworks Association. She says she welcomes the settlements, but is disappointed that the amount isn't greater. Looking at the scope of the problem across the nation, $10 billion isn't really going to be sufficient enough to cover what our public water systems are facing. I mean, I think we're looking at billions in Massachusetts alone. PFAS chemicals have been linked to numerous health concerns, including liver disease and cancer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The acting U.S. attorney for Massachusetts is launching a summer violence reduction initiative. He aims to stem the increased gun violence that often happens in summer months. The initiative includes convening regional roundtables with law enforcement to foster collaboration. It also includes establishing a ghost gun task force to tamp down on the illegally made firearms. The city of Boston is holding a hazardous waste drop-off event this morning. Residents can dispose of hazardous waste, shred documents, get rid of clothing, and recycle electronics. The event's underway at Millennium Park in West Roxbury. It's 69 degrees in Boston. Showers today, a chance of thunderstorms, a high around 80. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Russia is in turmoil today. In a nationwide address, President Vladimir Putin said he would take decisive action to end what he called a military uprising inside Russia. He's referring to the head of a private military group, Wagner, which has apparently seized control of a key military center in southern Russia. Let's start our coverage with NPR's Greg Myrie in Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. Greg, good morning. Hi, Miles. Hey, so give us some details about what exactly is happening in Russia today. Right. So this really blew up yesterday with, with some angry comments by the head of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Now, his private military has been fighting alongside the Russian army in Ukraine, but he said that the, the Russian military fired on his mercenary Russian troops in Ukraine yesterday, killing a number of them. Now, this has not been independently confirmed, this specific incident, but he blamed the leaders of the Russian army and demanded their ouster, and this is part of a long running feud he's had with them over how to wage war in Ukraine. And the Wagner forces now appear to have taken control of a Russian military headquarters in the southern city of Rostov, which is just outside Ukraine to the east. And it's been a key center for the Russian war effort. And and the Wagner troops are also said to be moving north in the direction of Moscow. And and Putin, as you noted, has gone on Russian TV to say that this must end. He's, He's promised decisive action. But he tolerated Prigozhin's diatribes against the military for months, and now it's spiraled out of control, and it's just not clear how it's going to play out. Yeah, this seems like a big development. You're in Kyiv. How are Ukrainians reacting to this to this news? Yeah, I think their response could probably be summed up with uh, Russia is getting what it deserves. Hmm. President Volodymyr Zelensky posted a statement on his Telegram account. He said, quote, Russia's weakness is obvious. The longer Russia keeps its troops and mercenaries on our land, the more chaos, pain, and problems it will create for itself. A number of other officials are striking a similar tone. That The head of Ukraine's military intelligence says that uh, Prigozhin is really telling the truth when he keeps talking about Russians, Russia's military shortcomings, while the Russian defense ministry uh, keeps lying when it says that everything is going to plan and, and Russia's winning the war. Well, bring us up to date on the fighting that is going on in Ukraine. Right. So all this political and military tension inside Russia hasn't had any immediate impact on the fighting here in Ukraine. Russia launched another heavy overnight missile attack on a number of cities, and the primary focus was right here in the capital, Kyiv. Air raid sirens were wailing. Explosions were ringing out through the night. Russia fired more than 20 missiles at the capital and, and surrounding areas. Ukraine's military said it shot down all the missiles, and this is often the case that air defense in the capital is extremely good. However, that missile debris got to fall somewhere, and it hit a high-rise apartment building, which ignited a fire. Uh, three people were killed, and more than 10 were injured. So all of this is against the backdrop of this ongoing Ukrainian counteroffensive that's going on in the east and south of the country. Could this turmoil in Russia have any effect on that counteroffensive? 
You know, Miles, it certainly could. It's just too early to tell right now. Uh, but this Russian crisis at home certainly comes at an opportune moment for the Ukrainians, uh, given their counteroffensive that's just started recently. Now, Putin will have to sort all of this out, and this could take a lot of his time and energy, and it's, it's far from clear what the outcome will be. Uh, Ukraine will certainly be looking for ways to exploit this on the battlefield. They're certainly hoping that Russia will be consumed with internal problems and that Prigozhin can make life miserable for Putin. I just note that the Ukrainians have no love lost for Prigozhin. His forces waged this ferocious battle against the Ukrainians for months in the eastern town of Bakhmut. That was really the longest, hardest battle of the war so far. That's NPR's Greg Meyer in Kiev. Thank you so much, Greg. Sure thing, Miles. So until news broke of these extraordinary developments in Russia, the focus in that region had been on this counteroffensive launched by Ukraine. Slower than desired. That's how Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky characterized it earlier this week. He added, quote, some people believe this is a Hollywood movie and expect results now. It's not. Ukrainian forces are reported to have to have recaptured several villages, but there's been no major breakthrough. We spoke to Mark Kansian yesterday, a retired Marine colonel and a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We asked him to walk us through what the counteroffensive looks like on the ground. The Ukrainians are attacking in three separate locations along the frontier, and the results are a bit disappointing, as President Zelensky had indicated, in part because expectations had been very high. But in part, after two weeks, the hope had been that they would be able to get through the Russian defensive lines, which are very powerful, uh, and be able to use this armor that they have been receiving and that they have trained, get into the open fields beyond and make a significant uh, gain of territory. What is making it so difficult to break through this Russian line? There are two reasons. The first is that the Russians have had several months to dig in and they've built very formidable defenses. They have three defensive lines, they have anti-tank ditches, they have anti-tank obstacles, and that's difficult for any military to break through. The other thing is that the Ukrainians are not terribly well trained. Uh, They've expanded their forces greatly. The United States and NATO have trained some of these units, but uh, not very many. What they're trying to do is very complicated. The military calls it combined arms. That is, you have to get all of the different combat arms working together. The infantry has to work with the artillery and the tanks and the engineers. And that takes a lot of training. It's very difficult, and the Ukrainians are struggling with that. So, Colonel Kansian, you have spent your career in the Marines. I'm wondering, for people who are having trouble kind of imagining what this fighting is like, can you just kind of lay out um, what this looks like on, on a practical level? Unfortunately, it looks a lot like World War One. There are opposing trench lines. There's a lot of artillery uh, to capture terrain. The Ukrainians have to leave their trenches and uh, capture their uh, opposite trenches. To do that, they will be using artillery to suppress um, the Russians so that the Russians can't shoot back. They'll be using engineers to cross the various obstacles, and they'll be using uh, long-range fires to try to keep the Russians from reinforcing the threatened area so they can get through before the Russians uh, can respond. I know there was some sense among American officials that Ukrainian fighters would be 
as this war kind of dragged on, would be more committed to the fight than some fighters on the Russian side. How has it looked for the Russians defending against this counteroffensive? Well, so far, the Russians have done pretty well. The, the hopes that they might shatter uh, don't uh, appear to have come to fruition. The Russians, of course, have many problems with morale and logistics and administration, but they seem to be hanging in there and continuing the fight. The Russians are very tenacious uh, in war. They are willing to uh, continue fighting in conditions that many other countries uh, would find unacceptable, and we may be seeing that. Is part of this a weaponry issue? Because I know President Zelensky has long been asking for F-16 fighter planes. Would that make a big difference here? Unfortunately, it would not. F-16s would be useful. First, you have to keep in mind that it will be many months before they would actually show up. But their primary value would be in air defense. because the Russians have been using their long-range missiles to attack uh, Ukrainian cities, particularly Kyiv. F-16s would be very helpful in protecting the cities, especially now that many of the air defense systems that the Ukrainians have are running short of missiles. They could be used for offensive purposes, but the area over the battle zone is very dangerous for aircraft. The Russians aren't using their aircraft there. Uh, the Ukrainians haven't been uh, using theirs very much there. The ground-based air defenses are very powerful. So F-16s, if they got there, would be most valuable in protecting cities, not for helping an offensive. What are the stakes here for this counteroffensive? The stakes are high because so much is expected of the Ukrainians having received all this training and all of this equipment. And many commentators had speculated that the Ukrainians might uh, recapture all of their uh, lost territory. Uh, there are many questions about Crimea, whether the Ukrainians could capture Crimea. In recent weeks, both the Ukrainians and the U.S. have been trying to tamp down expectations because that's just asking an awful lot. The Ukrainians do need to show some progress. The risk is that if they don't, then their supporters in the West and their own people will get discouraged. This will look like a forever war and advocates for immediate negotiations and the ceasefire will get stronger. That's Colonel Mark Kansian of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks for having me on the show. Tomorrow marks 10 years since the Supreme Court struck down key provisions of the Voting Rights Act, one of the most important pieces of civil rights legislation. Now, legal scholars worry the court is getting ready to further weaken the legislation, limiting who can sue to ensure voter protections get enforced. The fact that it would be questioned shows that there are extremist approaches being taken to dismantle the Voting Rights Act. That story later today on All Things Considered from NPR News. Tune into your member station or listen at npr.org. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. You're listening to NPR News.
Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for coverage of the growing turmoil in Russia. It's 72 degrees in Boston. Showers today, a chance of thunderstorms, a high around 80 degrees. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for a nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. Today marks one year since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Since the decision, many states have passed laws banning or restricting abortion at various stages of pregnancy. The governor of Arizona has signed an executive order that protects anyone involved with illegally obtained abortion from being prosecuted. In announcing the order, Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs pledged to continue the fight for access to safe and legal abortions. Interstate 95 has reopened in Philadelphia. A section of the roadway collapsed earlier this month after a tanker truck caught fire under the highway. Work will continue on a permanent fix. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at MelvilleTrust.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Many families across Pakistan are still waiting for news about their loved ones. Over 200 people from the country are confirmed dead after a fishing vessel carrying migrants sank last week. The boat was crossing the Mediterranean Sea, loaded with over 700 passengers. Betsy Joles reports from Pakistan on how some of the families are coping. In Golki, a village near the Pakistani city of Gujarat, the houses of men missing from the shipwreck are within walking distance from each other. From this village, six men left for Libya, where they planned to travel to Italy by sea. We visit the home of Maktoum Sadiq, one of the men who's still missing. Sadiq's wife, Tifa Tabassum, last heard from her husband before the crash. He sent her a voice note from Libya. In the barely audible message, Sadiq tells his wife they'd leave any day now. May God make everything okay. Just pray for me, he says. Sadiq worked as a taxi driver. He sold his car and spent his family's savings to afford the trip, which relatives say cost him 2.4 million Pakistani rupees, 
more than $8,000. All of us had warned him against going. We had only heard from people that it was a very difficult journey. Please return my husband. We're still waiting for him. Sadiq's money went to Pakistani agents who coordinate travel for people to enter the EU illegally. Maktoum's close friend, Ibrahim Khan, says many people use agents to go abroad. Everyone in Pakistan is looking to go outside to Saudi Arabia, Dubai, Muscat, and other places. If the situation in Pakistan or business was good, nobody would want to leave. Pakistan's economy has been deteriorating for months, and record levels of inflation have made life harder for millions of lower- and middle-class people around the country. In three villages NPR visited in Punjab, families say this frustration of not being able to make a decent living pushed their relatives to attempt the dangerous trip across the Mediterranean. Mian Muhammad Khan is a local politician in Nur Jamal, a village around an hour from Golki. He says a lack of information and a shortage of legal pathways for migration contributes to this trend. After this incident, people still went from our village to Libya. This can only be stopped after instituting better measures. Gujarat and its surroundings are known as a hotspot for human smuggling, and many from the area attempt the trip to Europe. Han says people are also attracted to the image of life abroad and the wealth and status they believe it brings. They convince themselves that if they go there, they'll make more money. Nearby Golki, the family of Azmat Khan found out he was alive through a WhatsApp group used to identify missing people. Azmat escaped the boat by swimming, a skill he practiced in the nearby Chenab River. Others are hoping their children survived in the same way. Syed Ali Reza's son Zain completed a police training course and was physically fit, he says. People on the boat with Zain told the family he was wearing a life jacket and trying to make others around him feel safe. Ali Reza describes his son as big-hearted and giving, somebody who puts others first. He had a lot of love for people in his heart. And even though we're poor, when people would come, he would give them clothes, shoes, and money. Ali Reza now spends his time surrounded by friends and neighbors who come to visit him and offer their support. It's a distraction from the uncertainty he feels, not knowing the fate of his son. You keep thinking about what must have happened, and the tears keep flowing. For now, all he can do is wait, hoping and praying for the best. For NPR News, I'm Betsy Joels in Punjab, Pakistan. It has been a historic weather week in Texas, as the start of summer brought with it a brutal heat wave that is shattering records. San Angelo, in the center of the state, set an all-time high temperature record at 114 degrees. That's three degrees hotter than the previous hottest temperature ever recorded there. And the heat's expected to continue into next week because of a weather phenomenon known as a heat dome, stretching across Texas and into Arizona, Louisiana, and New Mexico. We're joined now by National Weather Service meteorologist Victor Murphy. He's based in Fort Worth, Texas. Hi, Victor. Good morning. Tell me a little bit about what it's felt like outside this week. The state of Texas has sort of been a case of uh, 
pick your poison. Parts of the state, as you mentioned earlier, um, have seen all-time record high temperatures, and that's basically been the southern part of the state. So maybe a line from San Angelo down to about uh, Corpus Christi southward or so. The other side of the coin has been just very, very high dew point temperatures, which is a, a way of measuring the amount of uh, water vapor in the air or the amount of moisture in the air. So it's been a combination of just flat out heat and heat and humidity combined to have record high heat index values. And so this phenomenon is brought on by what's known as a heat dome. Can you just explain what that is? Well, the heat dome is basically a large area of high pressure aloft, very stable, the stability of the atmosphere and the, and the warmth of the atmosphere in that layer pretty much precludes any development of any clouds or even showers, just a lot of hot air trapped in that layer. And there's been a very persistent heat dome across Mexico uh, for the last month or so. And that heat dome has sort of been waxing and waning or northward, if you will. And as it moves north into Texas, like it did during the past week, we get all this extreme heat. Bad news is for next week, looks like that heat dome should probably move far enough northward. It actually is centered over South Texas, say the Rio Grande Valley. And as a result of that, the area that the heat dome encompasses is going to include not just Texas, but also New Mexico, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Mississippi. I think the thing on many listeners' minds is how does climate change play into all this? I mean, is it fair to say that these temperatures are a direct cause of climate change, or what's the connection here? Well, it's hard to attribute one specific event to climate change, but I do see a couple of uh, climate change fingerprints, shall we say, at the scene of this crime. And the two fingerprints that I see are, number one, when you have climate change, you get less difference in temperature between the tropics and the, uh, say, the North Pole. So as that temperature difference decreases, the jet stream decreases as far as its uh, strength goes, you tend to end up with this blocky pattern of sort of ridges or troughs or areas of high pressure, low pressure, just sort of being stuck in place. That's the one fingerprint of climate change that we're seeing in this event. And the second one would be the increase in these uh, dew point temperatures. The amount of water vapor that's available in the atmosphere, the amount of water vapor that the atmosphere can hold increases. And as a result of that, you tend to see these higher dew point temperatures. So that's that's the second fingerprint. So I think those are the two main fingerprints that we're seeing of, of climate change in this event right now. So this heat is going to touch millions of people's lives, Victor. Can you just give some advice for people who are living in some of these places on how they can stay safe during this time? Yeah, it looks like we're going to have about you know 30 to 40 million plus people under heat advisories or excessive heat warnings next week. So any kind of outdoor activity, you want to do it very early in the morning or late in the evening. You know, if you don't need to go outside and, you know, do any kind of uh, outside work or outside labor, don't do so. Just stay indoors if you can. I should point out that heat is the leading source of fatalities across the United States over the last 30 years on average. There's been about 160 heat fatalities per year. Heat can kill you and, um, you know, be wise as far as decisions you make as far as, go, you know, going outdoors and staying outdoors or doing hard physical labor outdoors. Meteorologist Victor Murphy with the National Weather Service in Fort Worth, Texas. Thank you so much, Victor, and keep drinking water. <laughs> Thank you, sir. For decades, anti-abortion rights activists and politicians rallied around one major goal, overturning Roe v. Wade, 
1973 Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion nationwide. One year ago today, they succeeded, and many conservative-leaning states quickly moved to ban abortion. NPR's Sarah McCammon looks at how that victory is reshaping the movement's message. With the release of the Supreme Court decision last year, abortion rights opponents delivered on a long-standing promise. I want to live to see the day that we put the sanctity of life back at the center of American law, and we send Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history, where it belongs. That'll happen automatically, in my opinion, because I am putting pro-life justices on the court. That's former Vice President Mike Pence and former President Donald Trump speaking publicly during the 2016 campaign. The ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization from a Supreme Court that included three Trump nominees was celebrated by Republican leaders. Some of them, like Texas Senator Ted Cruz, quickly adopted a cautious tone. Here he is on Fox News, stressing that the decision did not equal a nationwide abortion ban. That means in bright blue states, at least for the immediate foreseeable future, there will be no restrictions whatsoever on abortion. On Fox Business, soon after the decision was released, Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn said her office was getting calls from concerned residents saying they didn't want a ban on abortion. We would say, well, it's not. This sends it back to the states. So I think we have some that are overreacting. In August, Tennessee banned virtually all abortions. About a dozen states have implemented similar laws and more are likely to enact other restrictions. The anti-abortion movement may be winning policy battles, but the politics are shakier for Republicans. In the months after Dobbs, in states where questions about abortion were on the ballot last year, voters consistently supported abortion rights. And several new polls indicate that about 6 in 10 Americans think overturning Roe was a bad decision. In light of that public opinion, Barrett Marson, a GOP strategist from Arizona, says Republican leaders need to adjust their message. They have won the fight to allow abortion policy to be decided by the states. Now they have to deal with the realities that in many of those states that are controlled by Republicans, you are going to see a lot of unwanted pregnancies come to fruition. Now policies have to catch up with that. That may mean focusing more attention on helping parents now struggling to navigate unwanted pregnancies. Eric Scheidler with the Pro-Life Action League helped draft a statement earlier this year calling on the anti-abortion movement to promote policies like paid family leave and child care. If our goal in the pro-life movement is to save babies from abortion and offer real help to their mothers who don't want to go through with that procedure, then we have to be willing to uh, put our money where our mouth is on on social programs and also private uh, charities. Republican governors in several states signed laws this year designed to help new parents, including Texas, which approved extending postpartum Medicaid coverage, and West Virginia, which increased a tax credit for adoptive parents and set aside $1 million for pregnancy centers that counsel patients against abortion. Sarah Standiford, National Campaigns Director with Planned Parenthood, notes that most of those centers do not offer a full range of reproductive health care, like birth control and cancer screenings. And so every dollar that gets allocated to uh, essentially centers to dissuade people from having abortion means less dollars available for comprehensive health care that people rely on. 
In a conference call hosted by the National Pro-Life Women's Caucus this week, pollster and former Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway said Republicans should advocate for more support for pregnant women. And she said in this post-Roe environment, they should not be backing down from fighting for more limits on abortion. In fact, Conway hopes Republicans will now push harder for a national abortion ban and work toward getting the votes to pass one in Congress. She notes that most Americans support some limits. Dobbs should have clarified, not confused, pro-lifers' positions and their willingness to, let me repeat it, stand up, put up, show up, and speak up. South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham says he will reintroduce a bill to ban abortion nationwide at 15 weeks of pregnancy, which he and Conway describe as a national minimum standard, or what could be a first step toward more restrictions. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington. listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The city of Detroit is honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. this weekend. It was 60 years ago that he held a march there, the Walk to Freedom, and gave a sort of preview of his famous I Have a Dream speech. Here's NPR's Juma Say with the story. It's a rainy and overcast morning in downtown Detroit, but dozens have gathered anyway on the waterfront for one of the events in this weekend's June Jubilee. The four-day-long celebration commemorates the 60th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech at a place called Cobo Hall. One of the people here is Zora Nunley. We would not be here today without the people that fought for us. As a young person, I feel honored to serve as a reminder that we're here because somebody decided I'm not standing for this and I'm going to do something about it. Nunley is a high school sophomore. She says Detroit breeds excellence. She's proud of the city's many legendary musicians and prominent civil rights activists. She thinks that King saw that too. Dr. King came to the city and, and felt that spirit and said, yes, this, is, this has inspired me to do what I need to do. Give one of the greatest speeches of all time. This year, organizers are unveiling a new statue of Dr. King. Three, two, one. Six decades ago, when the Walk to Freedom originally happened, more than 125,000 people showed up. They processed several miles along Woodward Avenue. That's Detroit's major thoroughfare. At the march's conclusion, King spoke about the recent murder of a friend and fellow activist, Medgar Evers. He was killed just a few days prior. King said that Evers didn't die in vain. There are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. The young reverend also spoke about discrimination in the North, about segregation in the education system, prejudice in the job market, and unequal access to housing. He roused the audience with a familiar refrain. I have a dream this afternoon that one day right here in Detroit, Negroes will be able to buy a house or rent a house anywhere that their money will carry them. Some call this speech an early version of his I Have a Dream address. 
That speech would later be immortalized at the Lincoln Memorial. Back at Detroit's waterfront, Reverend Wendell Anthony says Dr. King didn't just come to Detroit with a dream. He came with a plan. The plan is for America to live up to its creed. The plan is for us to have economic equity and opportunity and parity, for America to be in the land of free, the home of the brave, for everybody. Anthony is president of the Detroit NAACP. He says his organization didn't support the original Walk to Freedom back in 1963. King, he says, was, quote, a little too radical for the NAACP at the time. That's why Anthony is so committed to celebrating the march. And in 1993, we have to lead it. 2003, we have to lead it. 2013, we have to lead it. Four times, NAACP. So I think we've done penitence since that 1963 issue. Anthony says there's still a lot of work to do when it comes to achieving equality for black Americans, especially on issues like voting rights and education. We got to make sure that people understand that there's a high cost of freedom. It's up to black folks to keep reminding the nation of this cost. That's why he's marching for freedom. Juma Say, NPR News, Detroit. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Stay with WBUR for coverage of the turmoil in Russia. To recap, Russian President Vladimir Putin is condemning what he calls an armed mutiny led by the head of a pro-Kremlin mercenary force. Putin is denouncing it as treason and says it's a stab in the back of the country. The head of that force, Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prokoshin, is denying Putin's allegation of betrayal. Prokoshin is accusing the Russian military of attacking his advancing troops. Putin, meanwhile, says he's ordered the military to squash the rebellion. Prokoshin says his fighters have seized control of military buildings and facilities in a southern Russian city that's a key strategic command center for Moscow in its war against Ukraine. President Biden has been briefed on the crisis. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he's spoken about the situation in Russia with his counterparts in the Group of Seven Nations. It's 72 degrees in Boston, showers and a chance of thunderstorms today, high around 80. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU College of Fine Arts. Earn your graduate degree at a tight-knit arts community in a vibrant university. bu.edu slash cfa slash grad. Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast oceanstatejoblot.com, and JBS Home Inspections with condo common area inspections as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston, jbsinspections.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Adam Felber wished Godspeed to Pat Sajak, retiring after 40 years hosting Wheel of Fortune. I don't know if you've seen that show in the last couple of decades, but how different is retirement from hosting Wheel of Fortune? (laughs) (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. We're not retiring, and to prove it, we're going to be live at Tanglewood with special guest Karen Allen. Hey, if she's still doing Indiana Jones movies, we can still do this. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. 
And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. And now it's time for sports. The NBA draft and the most hyped prospects since LeBron James. Same faces, new places, big time trades across the league. Joining us now is Howard Bryant of Metal Arc Media. Good morning, Howard. Hi, Miles. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. So the NBA season is over, but this is the sport that never sleeps. <laughs> the San Antonio Spurs selected first in the draft this week, and they chose Victor Wimbanyama. So the 19-year-old, seven foot four French phenom, and based on the coverage, I feel like you would think this guy is a mix between Michael Jordan and Wilt Chamberlain. Do you buy all this hype? Well, certainly physically, you have to believe it when you when you see it because there's never been a a player like this with this type of hype. Normally when you're 7 foot 4, they're expecting you to be a low block player, down underneath the basket like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or or someone like that that that's going to be your role. But Wembanyama is supposedly when you look at the clips of him, he he can shoot outside three-pointers. He's got the agility of a of a Michael Jordan level guard. He's he's got the the size of a Kareem. However, he does look like he weighs about 125 pounds. So it will, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see how he handles the the physicality of the NBA. But there's never been a player like this. Normally, when you're seven foot four, it just hasn't translated. That sort of height in a in a tall man's game, it doesn't translate because your height is negated by your lack of athleticism. We've seen it with Sean Bradley, who was seven foot six. We've seen it with even Ralph Sampson at seven four back in the 1980s. Normally, when you start to get over that seven, seven one, seven two size, you become less of a player simply because you're too big, if that makes sense. But uh, Wembanyama looks like so far, he's got the entire package, and in today's game where the expectation is to be able to, no matter how tall you are, to be able to shoot from 25 feet, but also be able to get to the basket in three steps like he can do, he looks like he's going to be something special. And good to see him in San Antonio as well, a, a, a city that has been used to having a championship team that's been down for a while. Right. Well, I, there's a clip that sticks in my mind where there's one clip online of him shooting a three, and then he takes two steps, the rebound comes off, and he dunks it. And, and so I, exactly. I feel like being able to do both of those things is pretty pretty emblematic. So the other thing that happened this week is a, a number of trades went down. Can you walk us through the one involving the Golden State Warriors? They They picked up Chris Paul, who is 38 years old, but is considered, you know, one of the best point guards of his generation. He's still one of the best point guards of all time. Going to be 39 this year as well. And especially what happened in Golden State, we always say that devastating losses have devastating consequences. And we saw that in Boston and we see it absolutely in, in San Francisco with Golden State. And the devastating loss there was last year when beginning of uh, training camp, the defending champion Golden State Warriors had their power forward, Draymond Green, punch Jordan Poole in the face in, in, during a practice. And the team goes out later that year. They get, they get knocked out of the playoffs by the, by the Lakers. Steve Kerr, the head coach, pretty much comes out and says, we were never the same after the punch. They were not a, a really a, a great team this year. And it was really hard to see 
And now you trade a 23-year-old for a 38-year-old, which tells you that those breaches had never really been healed um, over the course of the season. Is there any other trades that stuck out to you uh, this week? Well, once again, the devastating loss has the devastating consequences. And so the Boston Celtics, on the verge of, of playing for a championship again this year, lose to Miami. They trade Marcus Smart. And so that first core of, of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and, and Marcus Smart, that's being broken up. Then, obviously, the, the deal sending Bradley Beal to Phoenix to play with Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. Lots of changes, and the, the soap opera that is the NBA post-offseason uh, is just beginning. Keeps us all on our toes. Howard Bryant of Metal Lark Media, thank you so much. My pleasure. Cork City, Ireland, 2009. Rachel is a student working in a bookshop when a guy named James comes up to her and says... Someone here has scabies. He said it like he was Poirot investigating a country house blighted by murder. What? I said, the shock of the sentence shattering the glassy reserve that I had cultivated as part of my persona. The persona, broadly known as girl who works in bookshop. And what are scabies? They're like a parasite, he said. Like worms? No, worms are inside. Scabies are outside. Have you ever had worms? And so begins their best friendship. Rachel and James move into a crappy apartment where they drink cheap wine and watch TV in bed, and their lives slowly intertwine. The Rachel Incident is a book about friendship, romance, and coming of age at a specific time in history. The author, Caroline O'Donoghue, joins me now. Hi, Miles. Lovely to speak with you. It's great to have you. So at the center of this book are Rachel and James. Will you just Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about their friendship? I I often think of their friendship as being, you know, that bit in an old movie where a soldier, you know, in a bar, he kind of nudges his buddy and says, I'm going to marry that girl someday. And the specifics of them is that Rachel is a um, she's a 20 year old sort of girl who's living in Cork City, a place where she grew up and has that specific thing. I don't know if you know it, of like um, going to university in the same town that you grew up in. And so by the age of 20. Very, very well. (laughs) Where did you go? Uh, I went to school down in Tampa, Florida, but that's a, that's a different story, but it's very familiar to me. <laughs> yes, yes. And um, she's kind of from an upper middle class background, but because of the Irish economic recession in 2008, her parents have been absolutely devastated by that. And so she's kind of well brought up, but broke. And James, meanwhile, he has a very, what I would call a Angela's Ashes background, but is very kind of effervescent and charismatic and fun. and also closeted many things happen I I I sort of I I worry sometimes I talk so much about their friendship that I'm afraid people will think it's a novel where nothing happens but um, a lot happens it's just hard to discuss a lot happens in this book I want to ask about a couple of the other characters in the book there is Rachel's college professor who then begins kind of dating James and the college professor has a wife who then Rachel begins working for and Rachel has this other boyfriend who moves into her life who kind of becomes a constant throughout the book. All of these characters are older than Rachel who are are kind of adults, but I wondered, do you feel like they have it figured out more than she does? I think one of the things that the novels is about really is that like she is looking to everybody to be formed by them. You know, she's obsessed with She's so obsessed with what her boyfriend says about her when she's not around that she can't really concentrate on her boyfriend in the moment, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, And the Burns are an incredible figures in her life. And I think we all have that, that, don't we, where the first people we meet who are our friends, who are 
we almost think of as being in our parents' generation, but they're our friends and how exciting that is and how we will take anything they say as being the wisest and most correct thing. And then there comes a point where like everything falls apart and she has to dictate to them, okay, here's what's going to happen now. And she realizes how vulnerable everyone around her actually is. Abortion becomes a big theme of this book as well. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about why why that was something you wanted to write about? So uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, abortion access was completely illegal in Ireland until 2018 when the Eighth Amendment was repealed in our constitution. And gay sex acts were illegal in our constitution until the 90s. The last Magdalene Laundry, which was mm-hmm. a system for institutionalizing and incarcerating young mothers and young women who were having sex inside of marriage. The last one of those closed in 1996. And so there's all these like horrible, horrible tiara of Irish repression. For me, the crown jewel of that is the fact that if you were an Irish woman growing up of my generation or any generation beforehand, you could not think about your sex life without also thinking about the worst consequence of your sex life and how, how that divorces you from sensuality and from instinct and from trusting people and from fun. One of my favorite sentences in the book is this line where Rachel says she's she feels like she was developing at a kind of crossroads of female messaging where she was feeling all of these physical desires while at the same time pop stars were being shamed. That was kind of Paris Hilton, Britney Spears time. She was just taking in all of these contradictory messages about what it meant to be a woman. Yeah, at the beginning of the book, she has this boyfriend. They split up quite quickly because there's no room for him in her and James's love affair. And she starts going out all the time and she's always, you know, getting drunk and she's always, you know, having a lovely kiss with somebody in the back of a club. And then inevitably he walks her home and then she would find herself feeling disgraced and like, how dare you assume you would come in and sleep with me? I'll slap you across the face like Catherine Hepburn and then walk inside and wonder why I did that, you know, because ultimately, you know, it was very hard to know what to do. Where And I think people often ask me in interviews, why is it, do you think, that Irish femininity is so culturally prevalent right now? Why are there so many Irish creators, whether it's in film or TV and novels? I do think that we grew up in this way where we had all the Western culture that, you know, everybody else had, the Paris Hilton and all the sex tapes. and But we also, we were emerging from a society that was so, so sexually conservative. And it's almost like, you know, how like every single horror movie in the 1950s was about aliens because everybody was afraid of communism. Mm-hmm. Irish women recounting their lives. It's almost like a millennial horror story of like, this is how it feels. It, this is how contradictory it, it actually feels to be a woman. But for Irish women, it's far more literal and on the surface, if you know what I mean. You pick a very specific voice for Rachel. She's kind of recounting the events of her early 20s from her, I believe, like early 30s, where she's got a little bit of distance from these events. And it seems to give her a sort of generosity for all yeah. of the characters in this book. Can you talk about why you decided to, to write it in that way? About halfway through the book, the events are coming thick and fast. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, my, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, you know. And I realized that if you were living in the present tense with Rachel going through these events as they happened, it would be very depressing. And I was like, I don't want to write that book. I wrote this book primarily to cheer myself up during the pandemic. And I wanted to feel only joy, even though I was talking about tough things. And so doing it in the past tense, she looks back on herself and it's the attitude throughout the book is, 
you know, God, I was an idiot, but what a great pair of legs. And <laughs> I really wanted, because there's such a temptation to pulverize your younger self and to guilt your own young self for sleeping with the wrong people or doing the wrong things or saying the wrong things. And I, I want the reader themselves to be like, think of their own past and go, oh God, what an idiot, but what a pair of legs. Caroline O'Donoghue, her novel is The Rachel Incident. Caroline, congratulations and thank you so much. Thank you, Miles. It's been wonderful. The singer NBDY turns to music for answers in his life. He grew up in northern New Jersey. His parents didn't have much money, so he was always looking to earn extra cash. And he found a pretty sweet hustle in elementary school. We would ask our family members for a quarter or a dollar or something, go to the store, and then we would actually like buy out a whole bunch of candy, bring it to school the next day, and then start flipping it. Early on, he decided to sing as he sold the candy, which was a hit with his fellow students. Their pockets opened and dollars spilled out. That early success made him think about music as a career. I can make money from this. I can definitely get my family out of poverty. Just financial freedom. Like, so I chose R&B because it was like the, the easiest thing for me. It came naturally and it was everything that embodied, you know, me. He joined choir in high school and eventually began making R&B music professionally. Now he's using his music to help answer new questions in his life about love, relationships, and his career. His new song, Feels, from his fourth album, touches on all of it. All I've ever wanted from you. I had came up with this record. I was in a, at a crossroads, and I'm a big lover boy, so I like relationships. I was in a, a relationship at the time, and I was raised in the industry to think you can't have a relationship and also have a career. That was the anxiety that I was feeling right there. Like, I just had to get all that out in that record. Music doesn't have a face to it. So, you know, you don't really get distracted by, you know, looks or any of that stuff. Music is just sound, it's just feeling, it's just emotion. I'm a choir kid, first at heart, so you know I was I was in a jazz choir in high school, so I really liked the uh, the harmonies and the layers and being able to, to play with the textures, the reverbs and stuff like that. Like that's one of the funnest parts of my music, and then it actually made me even more uh, able to open up. This song is, is more of a, I feel like it's a cry out for love in a way that I've never done before. It helped me look at myself as like, maybe you want to control the situation a little bit too much. You know, maybe you just got to let your career excel or, you know, and just see where that relationship falls at the end of the day. You know, if that person is a real person, like they'll love you for who you are, not for what you do. And then that's where you got to learn to let go, let God. That's R&B musician NBDY talking about his new song, Feels. Why am I 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks, in for Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com slash public. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Special coverage of the turmoil in Russia continues at 3 this afternoon. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kate Playhouse in Dennis Village, now playing Sense and Sensibility, full of romance and redemption, comedy and chaos. Tickets at kateplayhouse.com. And summer term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu slash summer. One year ago, the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to abortion. It was the biggest court ruling in generations, and it quickly changed life in places where that access was taken away, sometimes at a major risk to health. To them, my life was not in danger enough. Life in a post-Row America, that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.